Welcome to the Heart of Leaders podcast, where each week we'll be exploring the frontiers of leadership with those who lead from the heart and put their people first, knowing that ultimately all team accomplishments are driven by people. They know that when they take care of their people, their people will take care of customers, lower costs, and drive customer loyalty and company profitability. These leaders believe that for most companies, culture trumps strategy. And culture starts with how you treat your people and how they treat each other. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado, where we teach extraordinary leaders how to build and lead high-performance teams who can consistently deliver exceptional results. We're back today with Heart of Leaders faculty member Colleen Abdullah to discuss heart-led leadership on the Heart of Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Rick Barrera, head of faculty for the Heart of Leaders training program. Colleen produced extraordinary results throughout her career, but she put up some truly stunning numbers as CEO of Wide Open West, or WOW, LLC, from 2003 to 2014. And today we're going to dig into those numbers and her beliefs about heart-led leadership. Okay, Colleen, I promised numbers. Let's get into the numbers. Tell us about the critical metrics for Wide Open West and how they changed under your leadership. Thank you, Rick. Well, first of all, I think you're fortunate when you're CEO, you get a lot of attention, you get a lot of accolades. And I just want to state up front that I had an incredible team of people who made this happen. And yes, I'll take some credit for providing a certain amount of strategic vision and planning and a certain kind of leadership that I modeled and expected But that said, it was really the team that produced amazing results. Because when I joined Wide Open West, it was August of 2002. It was a turnaround situation. We were held by two private equity companies who many of the principals involved had to put up some personal guarantees in order to get the loan to start the company. And when I came in, um, the metrics weren't being met. The cash flow goal was was at risk for the end of the year, and if a certain number wasn't met by the end of that year, the owners were going to have to put up over $150 million in personal guarantees. So when I came in in August 20 of 2002, I think uh, cash flow was at around $9 million, and we needed to end the year at a minimum of $16 million. How many million? Sixteen? Sixteen. And you know as a new leader coming in, you have to spend at least a month understanding who's who, what they're doing, why they're doing it, and putting your team together. And so I was on a pretty condensed calendar. I, Before I even accepted the position, I put together a 120-day plan of what I thought needed to happen so that I would have the support and buy-in of the board. And part of that 120-day plan was 30 days getting the team right in the 60th or the the next 30 days, um, putting together their operating philosophies, values, creating the culture we needed, putting the uh, plans in place, and then for the following 60 days, implementation. 
And uh, I'm happy to say that we not only ended the year successfully, we ended it a million dollars over the goal at 17 million. We had 600 approximately 630, 660 maybe employees at the time and that million dollar overage just went to all the employees in a small uh, cash bonus as a thank you for working so hard and achieving that goal. And when I left the company, we were over 3,000 employees and over 435 million in cash flow. So we saw incredible (laughs) growth and success over the years, and it really was due to um, the team that we had put in place and how hard everybody worked. So did you get any pushback when you tried to give away money in the first year? That seems that that seems like people with their with their personal guarantees on the line wouldn't be enthused about that. Well, that's a great question. You know, not many no one's ever asked me that and the answer is yes. The board was like, "Look, we're thrilled you met the goal and we're off the personal guarantee." because you met the 16 million, but you know, that million, it's not like we're making a lot of money here. It should go back into the business. We have aggressive goals for the next few years. And I just held my ground and said, this is what I've tried to build culturally in this organization. And I went through it and I said, these people worked really hard to create more cash flow in the last two to three months of the year as they did, or as much as they did in the first nine months. And that was quite a feat at a sacrifice. And I want to show everybody that their loyalty, commitment, and hard work will pay off. And so that every year from this point on, if we do well, management will never get a merit increase if the front line doesn't. And we won't take bonuses if the front line doesn't get them. So we're all in this Together. That's pretty radical. Yeah, it was at the time. <laughs> but to the credit of the board, they said, look, you're new, you came in and you've accomplished a lot with this team. And if this is going to help you solidify loyalty and commitment and ownership and accountability, we're, in, we're there. And you distribute the million dollars how you see fit. And I really appreciated that. Wow. So, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, if you read Sam Walton's book, there are a lot of cool stories in there. But my favorite one is he shows a chart of Walmart's growth, uh, which was pretty spectacular. And then when he finally made the decision sort of against his own will to share the wealth with the people who work there, and it just hockey sticks straight up. And, and he said the biggest mistake of his career was not sharing it earlier. And that was my biggest takeaway from the book. And I, and I talk about that a lot with leaders, but somehow they think that the leaders should get the lion's share of, of the spoils. And I just never get that. So uh, that's a pretty heartwarming story. Yeah, it's so, you know, Rick, it's like all the basic principles of being a good person. They're simple. Um, They're not always easy to execute or I think pride, greed, arrogance, whatever, 
um, old systems, old ways of doing things can really linger on and and influence what we know at our basic to be true, which is if a company is successful, if the people inside that company, all a company is is made up of people and ideas and how they think and feel, if those people are honored and respected and feel a sense of ownership and accountability, they will perform beyond your wildest dreams, beyond any organizational development initiative, you know, or training initiative. All those things are good and they matter, but they don't encourage ownership and accountability and responsibility the way sharing the wealth does. And everybody understood at WOW that my bonus, my salary, my merit increase was going to be higher than than a call center reps, but because it's still a meritocracy, we still all have distinction in what we do and what level we're at in the organization or what level of responsibility we have. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't all share in the wealth to the degree that is relative to what we contribute. And I just feel so strongly about that. Yeah. But, you know, it's clearly not Wall Street's thinking today. I mean, if you look at it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the wealth is going to the shareholders and not to the workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think not, on, not in every case. I think the companies, there are a few companies with the leadership who understand, you know, how important that is to, um, to share the wealth and how much it, it, it affects their, um, their success. I know that when I was given an amount of equity to give out to top leadership, um, many surveys show that it goes to the 3% of the organization's you know, top leaders, and ours went down to a very front line. And part of that was giving up, you know, a portion of my equity so that we could do that. But I felt it was really important because if that equity was going to be worth anything, it was going to be because everybody cared and everybody did their best. So as much as I could give and spread it out, um, the more I was willing to do that and determined to do it. Amazing. So, Colleen, whenever I talk to executives about heart-led leadership, I get pushback almost immediately. They, they think this is the soft stuff and not what they call real management or real leadership. What do you have to say about heart-led leadership being soft? <laughs> well, I know that pushback well, because when I'd be asked to speak about what was happening at WOW and why we were winning all the awards we were winning for excellence from customers and how we had such high employee ratings um, for the happiness quotient that we had at our company. Um, A lot of people, I, I, I started labeling my speeches, the soft stuff gets hard results because so many times just the semantics of heart the word love, you know, I think Southwest did an incredible job in branding themselves as the airline with heart and who loved their passengers and loved what they did for a living. I mean, they weren't afraid to do that. And look at the success of Southwest Airlines. 
So it's interesting how people over time, business tried to pretend that personality didn't matter and feelings didn't matter and it was all about doing and not being. And that's the greatest lie. Um, and the, the, the silliest paradigm that has been adopted in many corporate settings and businesses because the truth is businesses are made up of beings who do. And so it's not soft at all to talk about leadership from a heart standpoint in that leadership, to be a good leader, you need to have all the characteristics that come from your heart and soul. And that is where your wisdom comes from. That is where your humility comes from. And unfortunately, a lot of leaders that we see today lack humility. The most powerful leaders of our time have been incredibly humble people. And all of that can't be something you think about. It doesn't come from your brain. It comes from that intuitive voice within It comes from that pure and soulful place. And to be a good leader, you need to embrace all four aspects of your being, your intellect, your physical, physicality, your spirit, and your, well, well, let's see now, I've lost the fourth one. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Emotional? Yes. I'm guessing. And so <laughs> so if you just, many people live in there. I think the first author to speak on this, to write on this, was Scott Peck in um, The Road Less Traveled. Yep. Did you read that book? Yep, yep, long ago. Where he, he talks about wholeness, and he talks about all four parts of our being, and that most of us live in maybe one or two parts of our being. The, um, the, if it's emotional, physical, spiritual, and intellectual, those are the four parts of our being. And he said many people live just in their intellectual. Some live just in their emotional. But if you are, or some live just in their physical. But when you connect with all four parts of your being, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, physical, you are developing all four aspects of who you are as a person and you show up as a whole human being. And I think leaders who spend time consciously developing all four parts of their being model something really beautiful to those that they serve. You were talking earlier before we got started about, uh, you know, you said we were we named this incorrectly. It shouldn't be heart-led. It should be heart-strong. You want to talk about that? Yeah, something. I don't know if that's the actual name for it, but I remember there's just so much association we have with words, right? I remember that as a leader, and I was doing some of my own personal development with a spiritual director, and I even got myself into therapy for a while. And I remember working on vulnerability and that I think I was raised to sort of buck up, be strong. What are you crying about now? You know, you've got all this to be thankful for. 
And so to me in my child mind, which developed into my adult mind, was vulnerability equals weakness. And it wasn't until I understood that when I'm vulnerable, I'm at, I'm at my greatest strength. I have the greatest power, personal power. And I, and I used that when I came into WOW, and I spoke to all the employees the first time. I said, here's what I'm good at. Here's what you're getting in me as a leader. Here's where the company's at. Here's what scares me. Here's what I'm concerned that we have to, some of our greatest challenges. Here's where I need your help. I was incredibly vulnerable. And what that did was show them that I was authentically who I am. I'm not going to bullshit them. I'm not going to act like I have all the answers. I'm not going to take all the credit. That we're in this together. And that vulnerability that was expressed, I, I was told later on, came across very powerfully that people wanted to follow People wanted to be part of it because they could trust me. And that's in one time of meeting a lot of these people, my first time. And so we all know when somebody isn't coming across authentically, it's hard to trust them. And so words matter. And I think heart and love, those sort of words have, have, have this connotation of, oh, well, that's something to be kept out of business. Right. HR does not approve. Yeah, it's you can't talk about those things in business, but that's when people say, I love what I do. I love who I work with. I love the company we've created. That's a good thing. When people say, I feel at my best here. I feel respected. I feel appreciated. Um, I feel like my contribution matters. That's all from the heart. They're not speaking from their head when they say that. They're expressing how they feel in their heart. And are all those are those all good things? Does every leader want to hear somebody say that? I love what I do. I I feel like I can contribute. I feel responsible for my work. I'm accountable. I I enjoy coming in every day. Every leader wants to hear that from their people. And yeah. that Language is language of the heart. Yep. You know, everybody's looking for an engaged workforce. You can't be engaged if you don't care. you got to have passion. Right, right, yeah. right. So, that, so I had a mentor who taught me that the, world, the word vulnerable came from the Latin vulnare. I think I'm pronouncing that right, which means being open to being wounded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's true. And that so, is true. I've heard that as well. And it is, and, and somebody would sort of hear that and go, are you kidding me? I don't want to be wounded. Um, well, I don't want to be not, open to being wounded, right? I'm not going right. to let somebody see my soft underbelly, right? Right. And, and I guess to me, when I say that it's really, you're, you're at your greatest personal power in a moment of vulnerability is because when you're vulnerable, you are being truly authentically who you are and nobody can take that from you. Nobody can injure that. Nobody can hurt that. Nobody can take it from you or say it isn't true because it is yours. 
completely. That's, you know, that's Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning. He's, you know, the the guards can take, you know, they can beat my body and take my food and my clothing, but, you know, my attitude of mind is mine and mine alone, right? They can't get it. Right. It's, It's when you have cancer. You can say cancer can, you know, try to attack my body, but it can't attack my spirit. And I thought about that. I had stage three breast cancer in 2005, and it was very aggressive and moving quickly through my lymph nodes. And I went through 10 months of intensive treatment. And I would, I just remembered that throughout the whole time is, you know, this is happening to my body, but it's not going to happen to my person. It's not going to affect the spirit within me. Wow. That's powerful. And I think... I think going back It's really to, powerful. I've never heard oh. that. I never heard anybody separate their, you know, cancer in their body from cancer in themselves. That's interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a disease of the body but not of the spirit. If you if you choose to see it that way. And and from the heart-led leadership perspective to just um carry on that point a little bit further as I learned really early on in my career as a leader is that you can't motivate anyone to do anything. You can't empower anyone to do anything. You can only create as the leader a motivating and empowering environment. And if the individual embraces that, that's their choice. And if they don't you know, they'll leave or they'll be asked to leave. But that was where my focus was, is am I creating a structure and an environment where people are encouraged and influenced to feel motivated and empowered to be their best? That's all I had control over. Right. And then it was their choice. So tell me about some of the soft stuff you did as CEO and how it led directly <laughs> to results, because it did. Uh, the things you did, yeah. you know, clearly manifested in, in significant bottom line results and a lot of growth. Well, so, some people, for instance, see values as the soft stuff. Let's just put up some values on a poster and get on with it. Well, at WOW, our values were what I would call operationalized they were accountability, respect, integrity, and servanthood. And we defined them. So we put a one-sentence definition to all of them, and servanthood was defined as it's a greater honor to serve others than to be served. And we made sure that we recruited, hired, trained, gave out merit increases, promotions, all based on how you modeled and lived those core values. So they were integrated into everything we said, did, and acted on. Um, we also had a zero so not tolerance. Words on a wall. Every, everybody loves to right. put words on a wall. Right. And they were four. They were easy to understand. Um, they were part of our personality and you were going to model them, or you, we had zero tolerance for somebody who deliberately violated them. You could make mistakes. We even had a courage award quarterly for when you made a mistake and we learned from it. So we encouraged mistakes because that's when we learn. But if you consciously lied, 
if you consciously were disrespectful, if you consciously chose not to model servanthood, then we asked you to leave. Zero tolerance. What if you were the top sales guy? And a story about that. I'll, I'll give you one quick story on that. There was a uh, technician having an argument with another technician in um, the lunchroom, and she was openly gay, and they were having this debate, and when she walked out, he said to the remaining technicians, well, what is that bleep bleep dyke know about it anyway? And that was reported to HR, and he, even though he was one of our top lead performers, he was escorted out. His truck was cleaned out, and he was terminated on the spot for that disrespectful comment. And that spread throughout the whole company that, oh my gosh, this is serious. Um, we meant it when we said zero tolerance. Yeah, sometimes you got to make an example. And it happened at all levels of our organization. Yeah, there are very few companies living their values, I think, to that level. And that's, you know, that speaks volumes when you take action like that. Another one is accountability. I believe that leaders make the mistake of getting too far away from their front line who is involved with the customer every day, and they get too far away or they're insulated literally from the end customer. And I think that's a mistake. So something we did at WOW was as CEO, I had an 800 number and an email just for customers. And every leader in our organization had an email, at least, where people could reach them directly. And what that showed to all employees at all levels of the organization is that I'm accountable. Right. And if they're not being accountable, I'm going to hear about it. Right. Because I'm open to hear it from other employees and from customers. And that led to a great level of ownership and accountability within the organization because they didn't want me to get those calls or those emails. They wanted to do it right the first time so that the customer was taken care of. And I think that made a big difference. I think creating wow moments where we took our brand and we played off of it and said that everybody should try to be aware of daily creating a wow moment for someone else, whether it was a customer outside of the organization or an internal customer, another employee, team member. And it was amazing to see the momentum that that created because, Rick, think about it. When we take time every day to have some quiet, meditative, prayerful time, whatever you want to call it, at the beginning of our day, we tend to be a little bit more aware throughout the day. And wow moments helped create that level of awareness to just don't go on automatic pilot. Be thinking about how you're interacting with each and every person and whether you can create a moment during the day where somebody says to you, wow, thank you for doing that, or that was so nice of you, or that was so thoughtful, or I didn't expect that. Whether it was a report that you got in early or a smile to somebody that hadn't received a smile in the day that little things mattered and made a difference. And all these things that some people might think I'm saying is soft, I mean, look at the results. We had a 97% happiness quotient when we took employee surveys. We had a 94.1% excellent 
percentage from our end customers. We had retention, high retention among uh, our frontline employees all the way to our senior leaders. The results are there when you spend time on what some people consider the soft behavioral stuff. We're not robots. We, we have to care and be concerned about how people are behaving, thinking, and feeling. And when we do, it pays off. The return on investment of time, the return on the investment of dollars you put into it, it all pays off. No, I, I believe that. So a couple of thoughts here. One, <clears throat> T. Green, who's one of our faculty members, uh, says that, you know, in his company, he says anybody who has the opportunity to impact somebody else, somebody else's life today is a leader. And so, you know, that goes, you know, from the front line to the receptionist all the way to the senior leadership, which is, I think, you know, what what you were talking about. Now, I got to. Uh, uh, there's a there's a there's a sort of there's not, it's not a skeptical part of me it's a, it's an experienced part of me that knows that somebody's going to listen to this and they're going to say okay here's what we're going to do we're going to fix our company we're going to go have wow moments and they're going to go to everybody and say every day every day we have to have a wow moment and it's going to ring hollow and it's not going to work now tell me why it worked in your organization and it's not going to work when somebody tries to put it in as a tactic yeah, very good question, very insightful question, because none of this is is done well in a vacuum. The reason things worked at WOW is, I think, starting with the foundational values being operationalized. So you have to have a stated philosophy for your company. Why do you exist? What is your purpose for being? You have to have values that are everybody embraces and acknowledges and lives every day consistently. So the consistency is really important. You have to then have ways to measure it, ways to talk about it, ways to reward it. You have to have a completely integrated process within your organizational structure, or it does, to your point, their tactics, their initiatives, and they fall flat. Yeah. Excellent. So you did work with people getting into the details of their family and looking at their genealogy and how that impacted how they worked or led or I don't I don't I know you started to tell me this story one time we never got into it tell me about that <laughs> oh oh I think you're telling about when when I left corporate for three years I was asked to do coaching of of executives and I tutored under Kathy Sunshine who I had hired to coach a lot of people that um, I had worked with over the years and I knew that she used this uh, method. It's just one of many tools that she uses in her coaching, and I embraced it. And what it is is at a certain point in the coaching of the individual, I like to diagram out at least three generations, say grandparents, parents, and their generation on a flip chart. There's now software you can use, but I would just map out what the individual's perspectives are of those family members who was married to whom, who died, who divorced, who was the black sheep, you know, what happened in different 
situations within the family and you map it out. And who the heroes then, were. Yeah, yeah. Who um, who the influences were. Um, and people, you know, sometimes got caught up in, well, I'm not sure when he died. Well, when do you think he died? Like, it was important to get <laughs> as much accuracy as possible, but to also honor the perceptions of the individual. Right. You know, if they felt somebody was seen as the black sheep, then that's important because that was their experience. So you map all that out and then you step away from it for a while and you work with that individual to look and say, now how has, what do you see here? What are some of the family myths? What are some of the family, um, what's part of the family lore? What are some of the family um, principles and values that you see here? What are some of the patterns of behavior that you see? And what's so valuable about that for a leader is we, you know, we're creatures of habit. We learn certain patterns very early on in life and we repeat them. And if we're not aware of them, some of those patterns are very detrimental to our growth as an individual and to our influence as a leader. And I'll give an example of one gentleman that had hired me to help him with his boss, who had been a great mentor to him, gave him a CFO role, the youngest CFO of a division, and and yet they were having conflict and issues. And I couldn't quite get to the bottom of it until I did the genealogy and discovered that he had a very difficult stepfather, and he acted out at the age of 15, 16, 17 years old with that stepfather in a way that he was acting out the same with this particular boss who just happened to have a lot of the same characteristics hmm. of the stepfather. That's fascinating. And he, it almost brought him to tears. He sat there and said, oh, my God, I have been reacting like that 17-year-old young man because my boss has triggered me in ways that my stepfather did. And I have to change that because he's not my stepfather. He's not. I've got to deal with those triggers. And when he started to deal with those triggers and, and communicate differently and respond differently, the two of them were able to create a whole new pattern of being with each other. And he went on to be very successful. That's so that's why I think understanding the family system, patterns, behaviors. Uh, one gentleman, you know, came from a, a Cuban family and really strong women in his family. And sure enough, part of his coaching was around conflicts he was having with some male counterparts. And when I really dug into it, with him, I discovered that, you know, he had this, he was raised to really respect and revere and appreciate the strong female leader, the strong female caregiver and, and caretaker and businesswoman, because that's what his family was. In his family, the women, it was a very matriarchal, not patriarchal culture in his family. And he struggled with that. He took that into business quite unconsciously and and didn't revere and respect and appreciate some of the men the way he did the women. Hmm. It was fascinating. It's fascinating, it is fascinating work. 
So you mentioned Kathy Sunshine. I was going to ask you about her. She's another Heart of Leaders faculty member, and she worked with your teams as well. What, what did she do for you, and what were the results of that intervention? Oh, my gosh, it was powerful. Um, she is the architect. It's sort of the secret sauce to what happened at WOW and why we were able to accomplish what we did culturally and systemically is because of her model called the service structure. And I was familiar with it before coming to WOW. And when I came to WOW, I knew I wanted to organize the company around the service structure. And what it is basically is it, it, it is a theory that believes that structure equals behavior. So if you're looking for a certain type of behavior and you're not getting it, look at how things are structured, and there's your answer. So give me an example. Okay, so she came into my company, and the first thing you do in the service structure model is determine and define who your customer is. And somebody might say, well, that's easy. It's X, Y, Z, people who buy my coats or people who buy cable. You know, it's no. Customers, she takes it down to a very segmented level of commercial customers, retail customers, um, B2B customers, um, the board as a customer potentially, depending upon the organization. The process starts solely with who are you in business to serve? Who does your nonprofit serve? Why do you exist? Who are these people that you are serving externally? And what are their needs and expectations? That's a critical part because not every customer has the same needs or expectations. So you outline that. Once that is accomplished, then you look at the internal customer, your employees, your various departments and functions within your organization, and you say, you answer the first question is, who is the number one contact to that end customer and to their needs and expectation? Who serves them directly? And you map them out at the top of the map, and then everything flows from there. Okay, now who serves them and who serves them? So what you end up with is a sort of a messy-looking map with a bunch of arrows that says, who is finance's internal customers? Who is the engineering teams or IT teams? Who are their internal customers? And what it shows is this incredible fluid map of everybody's department or functional area is there to serve someone else who then serves the end customer. And it creates, as you can imagine, it, it breaks down the walls, the interdepartmental conflicts. It, it breaks silos. down the smokestacks and the silos. Yeah. Yes, it breaks down the politics and the bureaucracy and the finger-pointing and the infighting. It just shatters all of that. Yeah, so you're really building high-performance teams to serve customers. Yes, I would say it, you're, you're, you're forming almost like it's like a software system. Your, yeah. your, your structure becomes this fluid software system that is there to produce 
an end result for the user, for the end customer. And it is really powerful. And so we mapped out our organization with the call center and our fulfillment field technicians as the first point of contact for our customers. And everybody, every other function in the company was mapped to serve each other, to serve them. And we had annual surveys where various departments got to evaluate the other departments that were serving them to determine how well they were being served. And there was great discussion and feedback that were given through those surveys. And it, um, it created a level of collaboration and integration that I had never experienced before in my professional life. And it was all because of this service structure model. Well, we're going to have we're going to have Kathy on the program. We're going to dive into that very deeply. L- let me switch topics for a minute. One of the, one of the biggest issues I have with the leaders who come through the program is, you know, they've grown up as doers, right? They were the people who were in charge of the tasks, and it's making this transition to leadership instead of doing the work, right? So they, they still feel like they have to do the work instead of designing the environment where employees can thrive. So talk about that a little bit. How did you make that transition? Well, I would say, yeah, what I, what I think is important is introspection, is to be able to step back from what you did and what you accomplished and to really be introspective about how you did it because it's really how you did it that got you this promotion or got you into this leadership role because lots of people are getting results every day, but not everybody's being promoted to leadership. So it's really important to step back and say, what is it about me that resonated that somebody, my boss, whoever gave me this opportunity, this promotion, this leadership position, what did they see in me? Maybe even go and ask them. I know what I did, I know what I produced, but what is it about me that makes you think I'm going to be good in this leadership role? Why did you give me this leadership role? So I would, I would ask them, I would ask myself, and then I would focus on those characteristics of how I am as a person that gave me this, op- this leadership opportunity and make sure that I continue to develop that in others. You spoke earlier about someone's definition of leadership, my definition is simple. It's you're a leader when you're bringing out the best in yourself and in others. And to your point earlier, that means that everybody that is doing that throughout their day has just led. And so when you get that opportunity as a leader, you say, how am I bringing out the best in myself And how am I helping to bring out the best in others? And I focus on that. That's your job as a leader. Sometimes it is to get in the trenches and help out if you need to. But most of the time, it's spending time on strategies for the business and strategies on how to bring out the best in those people who are doing the work. Excellent. So what's the number one thing you believe leaders are missing today that most hurts their bottom line results? Well, I would say two things. 
um, personal and on the on the business side. I think humility, or not listening, or not receiving the creativity and the ideas of other people, which leads to the second thing that I think they're missing is the view of the big picture, that that they view their employees as customers as much as they do their bankers, their investors, and the end customer. If they do that, if they start viewing their employees as their internal customers and give them the same level of respect and thoughtfulness and thought that they do the bankers, the investors, and the external customers, they'll see their performance improve. Great. So what happy thought would you like to leave our listeners with today? (laughs) Happy thought. There's so many. I think (laughs) the thought of, of to wake up every day with two things in mind, not taking anything for granted and being grateful. A perspective of gratitude leads to good things. Awesome. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the interview. I know that our listeners will, and and uh, hopefully we can get you back in the future to talk more. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Colleen. This is Rick Barrera, and I'd like to invite you to join us for our Heart of Leaders training program in Denver, Colorado. You'll be in a small class of just 30 or so participants hanging out with and learning from our world-class faculty. If you're enjoying the Heart of Leaders podcast, you'll love the Heart of Leaders training program. Come and get your questions answered, meet the coolest people in business today, and learn how to get the extraordinary business results we've been talking about on this podcast. Call us today at 858 248 3162 or visit our website at heartofleaderspodcast.com. We believe that Heart of Leaders is a movement started by boomers, accelerated by Gen Xers, and demanded by millennials. To learn more, find us online at heartofleaderspodcast.com where we blog, post articles, and book reviews and respond to your questions. We invite you to join the conversation.